This week is Mental Health Awareness Week 2022. So we wanted to speak a little bit about mental health whilst working in this field. Since the government has released their Rwanda plan, we've had Boris Johnson standing up once again, branding legal aid lawyers as left-wing liberal lawyers and the articles that have followed in the tabloid press, which have specifically named us with the usual rhetoric. So Tafit, what do you think the impact has been both on you and the firm of this kind of rhetoric, both from the the centre of government and the tabloid media? Yeah, it's a kind of here we go again feeling, you know. I was really happy when we decided to do a mental health episode, you know, on how it impacts you guys and you guys on the front line doing casework. And we will, in this episode, no doubt, cover all the other issues that make this type of work really difficult on on mental health, you know, long hours, onerous legal aid rules, the really stressful cases, clients who are going through unmanageable horrors and you having to do your best for your client while surviving in a in a legal aid practice right all of that is difficult and then you have the additional factors in recent times that makes it really tough you know the feeling that that there's a target on your back as you say in the last few days and weeks yet again we've been targeted by this government and the right-wing press simply because we are representing claimants who want to challenge the Rwanda removals policy. Really difficult, I think, to feel energised and motivated, even when the work is important and the work is, is you know, we think a force for good. It's hard to be to remain motivated when you're when you're getting a level of abuse from all sections, whether it's media or or the executive itself, or the public who read these headlines and think what you're doing is is a really bad thing when you're just trying to do your job. And so not only do you fear for your safety, because that is sadly now an inevitable consequence of this sort of rhetoric, but it all you also fear that kind of young, brilliant legal aid lawyers who would otherwise want to come into this sort of area of work will, will just be put off by it all. And that all really has an impact on your mental health and i guess that's the point isn't it you know it's the point of all of all of this government is to try and deter us it wants to convince the the managers of legal aid practices and the the owners to stop doing this sort of work to to make us fear the work itself to make us think twice before we take on difficult subjects and even though i'd like to think we won't stop doing that it is taking its toll on us as lawyers. And, and as as this hopefully this episode will go into a bit more detail about how all these policies and how these practices affect our clients and then the effect it has on us when we have to see what our clients go through on a day-to-day basis, the hardship, the horrors that they have suffered and then having reached place of safety, they are now having to go through yet further horrors and that will all have an impact on us so yeah it's hard to stay positive Anna but um yeah I hope this episode is at the least just a bit of solidarity that other people are experiencing the same and yeah just to start the conversation in mental health awareness week as well hello and welcome to the no rules podcast This is a podcast about all things human rights and refugee law, including the people working within it and the clients we represent. This episode is about mental health in this field. Uh, We've got some really interesting guests. First of all, we're going to be speaking to clinical psychologist Gillian Hughes about vicarious trauma in this field. And then we're also going to speak to our colleague um, Nicholas Hughes, 
they have got the same surname, but they are not related, (laughs) talking about his own experiences working in this area of law. But first of all, we wanted to kick this off with a conversation with myself, Anna Spivak, and Shavoy Zak, a bit about our own experiences of vicarious trauma, managing the responsibility in, in a field of immigration law, and what we do to make it more sustainable to continue working in this area. Anna, let's get let's get straight into it. Vicarious trauma is a massive, massive concept, and it's difficult to deal with in one podcast episode, but it's probably the most relevant point in terms of mental health in this line of work. To what extent are you impacted by it? And what is it about this job that really, really causes you difficulty in that sense? In general, I have found the impact of vicarious trauma to have a real significant impact on my emotional well-being. I think, and perhaps a lot of people relate to this, but as a person, I am emotional. I really feel the emotions of other people and my sympathy is, is very, very heightened, almost to my own adverse impact really so even just listening to clients talk about something that has really impacted them significantly has really etched itself into my memory so I have a lot of clients accounts that I don't think I'll ever be able to forget and will stay with me I think for many years so I think yeah in general I think it has had a very big impact on me so I think the more I work in this field the more I navigate through how to best manage that because it's not helpful to a client for a lawyer to get upset about their account. I mean, it also makes you the lawyer that you are, though, right? The fact that you really, really give a shit about what's happening to your clients probably makes you want to go that extra mile as well. You don't really want to be detached either. It's so difficult to find a balance. I reckon the fact that you care and the fact that you're an emotional person means that your clients really rate you and you do right by them 10 times out of 10. So it is a difficult balance to strike. Yeah, and I think the profession of being a lawyer carries a reputation of being quite overly professional. And that can come with being a little bit cold, somewhat disconnected, a very distinct relationship between you're the lawyer and you're the client. And they're not going to have that that warm interaction and and real um, sympathy. So I've really tried to avoid forcing myself into the mold of that description because that isn't who I am as a person at all. And I think what something that really helped me to do that is seeing how my supervisor interacted with her clients. So when I first joined, I was shadowing her in client interactions. And I was really taken aback by just how human that interaction was and how it was executed with such warmth and uh, humanity that it really gave me an insight into how you can redefine what kind of lawyer you want to be and how you want to present yourself in this line of work. But what about you, Sheroy? How do you feel the impact of vicarious trauma has been on you? It's interesting because I hear hear a lot of people talking about how the accounts of clients and the the relentless nature of them can make them very upset and sad. And I don't know, there are times where I thought, you know, is there something wrong with me for not feeling as upset as other people when I hear these accounts? Because the, the, the primary emotion that I feel when I hear this stuff is anger. And I know it might be the traditional gendered, toxic masculinity style response here. But it just really, really angers me. Um, and anger isn't healthy either. So that probably is an impact of, of hearing these accounts, right? It's not, it's not good to be angry for 95% of your working day because of what the Home Office is doing to your clients. But again, it also benefits me because that anger is what I use as motivation. That's when I really want to want to make sure that I keep putting it on my opponent. Because, because of the anger that I feel as a result of the treatment that my clients have faced. And I, I kind of sat there and thought about why I feel that way, why I perhaps feel really angry as opposed to really sad. And it's 
I reckon it's because knowing that this sort of stuff happens to people and hearing these accounts, it wasn't it wasn't new to me. I know it is new to a lot of people in this line of work, but look, I, my my grandparents fled Iran and went to India because of religious persecution. So I understood the concept. And then I grew up in an area of Hounslow, like you know the guys I played cricket with on my road, they were Afghan refugees. Um, so I, I knew about where they came from. So none of this stuff was new to me. I, I reckon my eyes were just opened at an earlier stage to the extent that I didn't feel sad about it because I was just alert to it. And then when you when you realize that it happens in, in this country that holds itself out to be this wonderful liberal democracy, that's what pisses you off. Um, so to that extent, that's the impact. We were talking a little bit before because I know that the responsibility of this job in particular has been something that's impacted you personally a lot. So I think it'd be really interesting if you could tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, massively. I mean, initially, when when I started working here, what, what struck me straight away was the trust that the clients put in you. Um, traditionally, you know, when you when you study and you're on the LPC or whatever, you get told, look, you're a solicitor, you take instructions from your clients, your clients give you your marching orders. Um, in this line of work, you can sit there and, and present every option to your client and they will just come back with, I trust you, sir. Don't worry. And I will sit there and say, look, you don't need to, you don't need to call me, sir. I want, I want to know how you want to progress your case. And they'll come back and say, it's in your hands. You carry on. I trust you. And, and when someone tells you that where they are going to sort of live the rest of their life and the circumstances within which they're going to live the rest of their lives is, is in your hands. That's massive, right? And that, that, it's the element of responsibility that can weigh, can, can weigh on you. And you've got to try and use it as motivation as best as you can. But look, we're all human. And no amount of exams is going to prepare you for that. You know, I, I, I did the GDR, did the LPC, did all the conduct modules, did, did all, all of the stuff that you're meant to do. But there's, there's nothing that tells you how, how to deal with that and prepare for that. And that, to an extent, yeah, it comes from supervisors, comes from directors, but you have to learn on the job in, in that sense, right? And that's something that I'm sort of getting used to now. The, the whole responsibility game shifted when I got my practicing certificate and I became a solicitor when it was my name on the claim forms. And, and because in recent years, whether rightly or wrongly, the courts do seek to make an example out of legal aid solicitors to an extent. Um, and it's not just the courts, it's, it's the newspapers, it's, it's everyone. If you're a legal aid solicitor, because of the people that we help, we're under the microscope. Because, I mean, probably because we're using public funds to an extent, everything is scrutinized really 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 intensely and you see i don't know about you but every time i get one of these emails from the law society gazette i'll sit there and just read the headline and suddenly go into like a five second panic even though it's absolutely nothing to do with my line of work right and then you see all of these things are pretty um anxiety inducing and as a solicitor i kind of feel like you're you're always on the edge a little bit even if you're even if you are um operating above board and by the book do you think that's got better the more you've been practicing, the more years you've been doing this, or is it kind of a constant? I've become a bit more comfortable with the idea of being a solicitor, but the more I've been practicing, quite frankly, the more sort of visceral and hateful that the environment has become. So, so that is also pretty, pretty anxiety inducing, right? When, when the courts are taking a harder line, when the legal aid agency is taking a harder line, when the government is taking a harder line, when the media is taking a harder line with everything that you do, that that has actually intensified in recent years. So quite frankly, I would say that the, the feeling of being under the microscope and constantly fighting fires and, and not knowing when your name is going to appear in, in the Sunday paper, talking about how taxpayers' money is being spent and not knowing when you're going to have to log into Twitter and see you know, people hurling racial abuse at you because of the clients that you serve and the fact that your surname ends in a queue. 
you know, that that has actually gone worse over time. And it's probably worse now than it has ever been in terms of the amount of time that I've worked here, to be honest. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think all of that um, anxiety inducing stuff on top of really high pressure, urgent work, a lot of clients, the distressing nature of the actual accounts and cases themselves, all, all makes it really difficult day by day, doesn't it? Yeah, that's where I think it's um, it's really important to have some sort of internal structural mechanisms to be able to deal with all of this. I find really difficult to effectively prioritise different clients because a lot of my clients have very urgent needs and components to their cases, but it's really difficult to prioritise one over the other when they're both really distressed. They're both experiencing suicidal thoughts and urgently want a resolution in their case. And to, and to navigate that when you are really overstretched and stressed yourself and, and trying to manage that and the, the guilt that can follow if you just don't have time that day to focus on um, that client's needs. I'm trying to think of another line of work where you may find yourself in that situation because I'm really struggling. Because I mean, using real life examples now, let's say I'm dealing with two real clients right now. We've got one who is in detention, um, and his his psychiatric state is 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 really deteriorating in detention. Very urgent. Need to get this guy out. There's another person who's been waiting at liberty for an asylum decision for eight months. How how do you weigh up the plight of one person's against another? How do you how do you tell the person who's at liberty? Sorry, mate, your your case isn't as urgent, despite the fact that I know you can't get on with your life and you're living in this crud nice accommodation. But there's someone who's in immigration detention, so I need to prioritise their case. You know, you're literally calling someone and telling them their case isn't as important as someone else's, or you're not necessarily telling them that, but you're thinking it. We we shouldn't have to be in that position, but there aren't many people that do this line of work, and there are so many people that are affected by it. So we have massive caseloads, and we have to prioritise. I think you need to come to terms with the fact that in this job, you are doing right by the people that you serve. And if you weren't doing it, these people wouldn't be getting any assistance at all. Your net benefit to the people that you want to serve is positive. And as long as you keep doing that, you're sort of assisting these marginalized groups. And keep if you can keep that at the forefront of your mind and try not to feel guilty about the fact that you might not get to something with the urgency that your client thinks it warrants, but you still get to it with the appropriate amount of urgency given the sphere within which you work and the landscape of it, that's all you can do. You can't do any more than that. And don't don't be too hard on yourself in that sense. Easier said than done, obviously. <laughs> true, true. Um, but I think this is maybe a good point to move on to what we do to try and make this job more sustainable for us, to function the best we can for our clients day to day, despite all these constraints. Yeah, definitely. I one, of the, one of the turning points for me in terms of this career where I realised that I needed to fix things was after I qualified, I found it, I found it all quite overwhelming. To the extent that there was one one day where I was I was out at dinner with two very good friends of mine. I've known them since I was a kid, so they they've seen me in every mood, every stage of my life. And I was so I was so panicked by what I had on. I was just constantly thinking about a number of things that I had to do that I hadn't been able to get to with the requisite urgency. As we were just discussing, the fact that I still had one client in detention, I had one client who's been removed on Friday, and we were like, I'll be honest, we were at dinner. I didn't hear a word they said, you know, and they were sort of clicking their fingers at me and they're like, Are you? Are you all right, mate? Like I've, I've not seen you like this. And it, I, I realized it was just work. And I wasn't, I either wasn't balancing things properly or I was just simply letting things get to me far too much. And then as time went on that year when I qualified, um, I started having really, really bad panic attacks to the extent that I'd be, I'd black out for, for minutes at a time. And I'd, I'd, I'd wake up and I'd open my eyes, you know, 10 minutes had gone or whatever. And that happened to me two or three times. Fortunately, two of the times they were, 
there were people with me. So I went went and did all the requisite blood tests and whatever. And they said, look, mate, you're, you're fit and healthy. You're, you're mid to late 20s. This has nothing to do with your health. Um, talk to us about what's going on. And it was all, it was all work-related, right? So I really wanted to find a way. Thankfully, that stopped now. So maybe what I have implemented does work to an extent. Um, but the main thing is learning how to say no. Don't you, you, look, we all want to help everyone. We all want to help everyone. We want to take on every referral. We want to take on every case. You can't do it. You're not doing right by your clients. You're not doing right by yourself. And you're not going to help anyone. Um, so learning how to manage your workload as if you were in any other line of work is, is massive. So learning how to say no is huge. There are a couple of other things I could deal with, but in terms of, it'd be interesting to hear from you as well. Why don't you, why don't you press on in terms of what, what you think you want to implement if you haven't been able to implement it? <laughs> I've been thinking about this a lot recently. I think what I've really realized is, and this is all through education as well, that my life has been studying or work that's taken like number one priority always. And then the next one is socializing and trying to maintain friendships and relationships and just trying to like keep afloat like doing food shops and cooking and doing your washing and trying to keep everything together so I've realized that I need some other parts of my life to really first the main thing is to ease the emotional distress of of the work so have things that are creative and exercise and things like that that are outside of work to try and keep your mindset as good as it can be because I really I know this is a bit cliched and oversaid but I really do believe that you can only help the people around you if you are your best self so I really want to try and push for that I know it's a it's not black and white and easy to just be your best self but it's a it's a constant active input to try and get to that level I've also tried to reframe the idea of my lack of experience comparatively to a lot of other people um, who have in this field, classic imposter syndrome. But I've tried to reframe that of, I'm really grateful I had that experience of feeling totally overwhelmed and not knowing properly if, if I knew all the right terminology, et cetera, et cetera, because it's really stuck in my mind about how clients must feel in situations like that, that going into a room and it's literally even if they do speak English that it's feeling like you just don't understand the words that are being used around you which I I definitely have felt before so I've tried to reframe that as a real positive kind of token of relatability that I can translate into my interactions with my clients as well which I think that that's been a really helpful step forward but you see you see what you just did there where you you said well I felt this kind of way but then I thought Man, imagine how my clients feel. Uh, that that we do that all the time, yeah. man. Like even even now, if we're if we're sitting here and we're feeling a bit down about our workload or, or whatever it might be, we all negate it and we just go, "You can't feel like that." Look at what your clients are going through. Totally. Right. And, and that 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 is something that I'm really trying to cut back on and stop doing. You know, I do. I don't just do it with my clients. Actually, I do it with my family because you know my parents. I'll be honest, man. I've had a much nicer life than my parents had because of them. And the work that they put in. My old man still wakes up at you know like half three in the morning to get to his airport shift, and he's done it since I was born. My mom fully grafts. My granddad was working until he was like eighty years old. I mean, and I've I've seen the way that they hustled. Whereas me, what did I do? I jumped through a few hoops at school, got a nice degree, got myself a decent job where I can you know I could, I could drive there, I could get on the train and go to this nice office. In the scheme of things, it's not that difficult. And if I if I keep negating the impact that certain stresses in this line of work have upon me, it's not going to do anyone any favours. So I'm trying not to not to compare that situation to anyone else's. 
and realize that it's it's all right to feel that way and i just need to i need to try and i need to try and put some mechanisms in place and look, to be honest the biggest mechanism has been a, a conscious decision not to let this job define me yeah. i remember man I, we used to go you remember the junction yeah when we had that harrow office for, for those of you that don't know the junction was our our firm pub basically we used to keep that place afloat it was like a road away from the office in harrow and whenever i used to go there on a friday man all i wanted to do was just switch off but there were so many people talking about work and I didn't want to let work define me. So I made, I, I really try not to talk about work when I'm outside of work now. And even, I don't know if you've seen this, but there are loads of Twitter accounts, right? Doesn't matter what time of day, five in the morning or midnight, when these people are tweeting, it's about work or it's about, you know, the state power or something that's really, really heavy 24 seven. I can't operate that way. I cannot operate that way. So even though my Twitter, as per our boss's request, has at DL public law in it, you go there, half of the stuff's about heavyweight boxing, Arsenal football club. Which one of my favorite artists is going to drop an album soon? A couple of jokes. And when there's something that I'm really passionate about in terms of a case that the team's working on, or, you know, I will, I will chime in here and there, but I can't let this job be all that I am because if that, if and when that happens, it, it just becomes way too much. You know, I don't know if it's just me, but my mind and my heart can't cope with that 24 seven. You need parts outside of this to be able to function properly. Definitely. Well, I think we have to keep each other accountable for these measures with so-called putting in place <laughs> yeah definitely let's have a little mental health probation review in a few weeks yeah <laughs> sounds good all right well i think that's a good juncture to move on to our first guest who is Gillian hughes Gillian hughes is a highly experienced clinical psychologist and systemic family therapist who has a lot of experience working in the nhs She's also has extensive experience working with marginalised communities, particularly asylum seekers and refugees. She's worked both in Calais and with freedom from torture. So she's the perfect guest to talk about vicarious trauma in this field in particular. So yeah, over to Gillian. Hi Gillian, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Um, so Gillian has actually just done a really interesting training with us um, and our team, all things about vicarious trauma and how to deal with clients who have experienced a lot of trauma themselves. So I think it's very fitting that you're now doing the podcast interview with us on this exact topic. So it would be great to just start this off by explaining to our listeners exactly what vicarious trauma is um, and how pervasive you think it might be within this field of immigration and asylum law. Thanks very much, Anna, for inviting me to join you today. And, you know, yes, I've been talking with with you and Duncan Lewis solicitors about uh, vicarious trauma, which is a, a sort of concept that's being increasingly kind of recognised. I mean, it has been recognised in the mental health field for a long time, but now other areas, organisations are, are, are starting to get interested. And and what we understand within the mental health field is um, that vicarious trauma is very much a response from professionals to witnessing, hearing other people's accounts of very traumatic experiences. So it's this idea of you can't not be touched by that when you're working, particularly in a humanitarian context or uh, in a context where you're, you're hearing distressing things. We are all human beings. You get touched by that. So what vicarious trauma is, is that it's it's a mirror of what we see in our clients, in people who've directly experienced trauma. So I think many people are familiar with, with post-traumatic stress disorder and the kind of ways that that shows itself. So PTSD, so all the kinds of symptoms around poor sleep, nightmares, poor concentration, 
being depressed, being anxious, getting flashbacks to the traumatic event or you know traumatic moments in that person's life. There's various kind of ways that, that PTSD can show itself. So with vicarious trauma, the people working with traumatized clients can experience some of those direct symptoms themselves. And it's difficult because people think, well, if you've not had it happen directly to you, it's not you're not going to suffer from that. But of course, you know, it's it is traumatic hearing these things very often and being with people who are in extreme distress. The other sort of idea that people are talking about, and I think has been particularly talked about in relation to people's responses to the COVID crisis and mental health workers, is this term moral injury. And I think moral injury is very much, is very relevant to lawyers working in a human rights context. because, And the idea is that, you know, we're working in contexts where we can't live out our values. Our values are sort of challenged. And and I think when you're constantly battling structures and the state that you see harming people that you're working with, it's a real sort of assault on our values and, and what we believe is important in life. And, and actually, when you're constantly working with that, that's inst- incredibly stressful. And it in itself can be very traumatizing for people. So I think, you know, moral injury is a, is a sort of important idea. Um, I mean, there's a lovely quote that I think sums up as well, which is uh, in response to your question about uh, how pervasive is this and uh, and so I'm going to read it out to you by it's been written by somebody called Riemann and the quote is the, the expectation that we can be immersed in suffering and loss daily and not be touched by it is as unrealistic as expecting to walk through water without getting wet and I think that's the thing is that you can't do this work and and be untouched by it so I think the kind of challenge really is how do you work in ways that are sustainable that you know and that you can create cultures that are going to support people enough to be able to keep doing this work basically vicarious trauma is something that's that's been spoken about a lot recently from my experience I haven't been doing this for that long I've been doing this for around 8 years or so and it's not a concept that I'd heard of when I started there were no individuals coming in to deal with vicarious trauma training for example and it wasn't something that people were really aware of I think then and perhaps before me there was this notion of it's your job get on with it. But the reality is, as you say, it's it's impossible to do that without feeling some form of trauma yourself. Why, why do you think that it is being spoken about more openly now? And do you think that there's something to be said for younger individuals in this profession, perhaps being slightly more vocal about it when compared to their, their older counterparts and their predecessors? I mean, that's a really interesting question. And I think maybe the tide is, is turning a little bit about mental health generally, because I think, you know, there's been a real culture of if you if you talk about these things, then it's a sign of personal weakness. And of course, you know, the way that we've responded doesn't really help that. So we see individuals in the NHS and individuals are given treatment. And this idea, if we sort of shore up your resilience, then then you'll be able to go back and do the work. Whereas I think there's there's a bit more, so I think there's more being said about mental health and younger people are, are kind of talking about it through social media in a way that hasn't been spoken about in the past. But I think also we need to be a bit careful about how we talk about it, because it's this thing about getting away from the idea that mental health is a personal weakness. But actually, what it's often people responding to very stressful or abnormal circumstances and that these are new, you know, normal human responses. For you personally, having worked with Freedom for Torture um, in Calais, as well as in the NHS, firstly, have you experienced vicarious trauma yourself and how do you deal with it personally? I mean, I think there is something about being trained as a mental health professional that means that you have, you develop over time very good resources for responding. And, And because you've got that training, you know how to, you know, how to support people. And I think there's something about feeling that you're being 
active and useful that's very protective. So that when somebody, when I talk to somebody who is telling a terrible account, in my head, I'm thinking, I know how I can, what I can do to comfort you or to help you to move from this very negative account to something that's a bit more that you can live with. So I think having that training behind you makes a massive difference. And it's interesting because I think, of course, as lawyers, you don't have a mental health training. So you're, you haven't had the opportunity to really, really build up those skills. So I think that's partly what protects me and people in my position. But I think also, of course, there are moments and things that I will never forget and that have, have particularly touched me and, uh, and have left me kind of remembering them over time. And I think I would say that it's so important to kind of talk about them, to have some support structures for yourself, to have colleagues that you can talk about this stuff with and not be on your own with it. And so, um, for example, there's a lot of work done at Freedom From Torture to make sure that staff can talk. There's a lot of, you know, all sorts of structures in the organisation to support staff wellbeing. And in, in Calais, we always worked in pairs. So that was one of our kind of rules. You never work on your own. And um, or if you if you do one to, a one to one meeting with a, a volunteer that you, there's always a colleague doing a parallel one that you can then debrief with. And I think that was really kind of how we how we dealt with it and, and supervision and that kind of thing as well. So there's space to, to talk through things. And in terms of mechanisms that an individual can put in place to try and lessen the impact of vicarious trauma, because I think it's unrealistic to say that the mechanisms could eradicate it completely, because a lot of what you alluded to is the sort of the notion of a collective. But are there any top tips you would have for someone who is trying to put in place individual mechanisms internally for themselves on a day-to-day basis to try and get through the working day and lessen the impact of vicarious trauma whilst also being as productive as they can be and as good a lawyer as they know they can be? I mean, you know, everybody knows all the things about work-life balance, taking breaks, getting, looking after yourself, all of that. So I'll not repeat that (laughs) all here. But you see, I think it's a really interesting question about who is responsible. Because yes, of course, we're responsible for looking after ourselves. But actually, we really need to be able to be sort of sharing this stuff as much as we can. And with, you know, managers and supervisors and colleagues and finding a way of, of kind of getting this out there and a bit more spoken about because actually what what organizations need is opportunities for people to connect with their colleagues and to to do some of that kind of you know quick debriefing play you know a a culture where people feel it's okay to go to a manager the manager won't be saying um actually are you telling me you're not coping with your job and and so i think it's we need to in a way kind of get away from that individual mentality of if if we just build up your resilience then it'll be all right because we have to think these are stressful contexts and so what can the environment how can the environment support this person so what would your advice be to those in management in in exactly what you say being being more approachable ensuring that staff don't feel as though whatever they say to their manager will be perceived as weakness or them being unable to fulfill the role or work under pressure whatever it is what what would your advice be to managers and people in that sort of structure to ensure that their workforce feels totally open and comfortable divulging that sort of information and that there's a collaborative environment within the working hierarchy. I think it's just showing that you're willing to listen, creating opportunities for people to talk to each other. I suppose it's all that kind of organisational structure stuff like, you know, making sure there are kind of meetings when people can do that or that the workplace is set up so that people, you know, have got a place they can make cups of tea and bump into colleagues you know it's all that it's all that kind of thing you know encouraging people to do socializing together so I think I think it's they're often quite sort of soft things in a way but it's about kind of creating a culture of openness and transparency and and care really by by setting up some of those 
some of those things. It's a difficult question to answer in a way because I also would say to listen to what people are saying. So what are the things that help people to feel supported? And and I mean, you know, it might be things like, I know it's really hard when you're working in a legal aid context and you're always kind of thinking about how can we keep going and get enough money? And, and that is the reality of a context that's very, you know, you have to work with. But all the kind of things like people having, you know, decent annual leave and sick leave and whatever. I mean, it's sort of, you know, good employment practices, I suppose. Anna and I earlier in this segment sort of discussed at length individual troubles that we'd had in this profession. And one one bit of common ground that we had was the notion that our clients go through so much and we see that on a day-to-day basis. And whenever we feel as though anything in our life is difficult as a result of the work that we do, we come down very hard on ourselves. And it's almost this idea of why, why on earth are you feeling upset or as if your life is difficult when you're wearing relatively nice clothes and you've just had lunch that you've paid £10 for in outside your office in bank and then you go and get wonderful public transport home and you can sleep in your bed and you invalidate your own feelings to such, such an extent that you're almost compounding your own feelings of depression and anxiety. It's a really interesting kind of point you're raising because I think this is quite common that people you know it it is a very common response of people feeling that they can't stop that they have to go that extra mile because my life is so much better than yours and it's of course it's such a kind of downward spiral it it really brought to mind when you were talking that image of you know on an airplane when they say put your mask on before you put the mask of your child on so I think you know we have to look after ourselves but it's incredibly difficult to say actually I'm going to go home because I'm tired now when you've got somebody who's desperate and I mean I don't know the answer to that because it is something that people talk about over and over again I think when we were working in Calais a lot of the volunteer activists in Calais were saying just worked all hours because they were right there and you know the the kind of difference between their lives and the lives of the people in the camp or, or out on the streets was just so stark. But in a way, I think that is the, that is the dilemma of, for activists. And, and I think you just have to hold in your mind that you have to put boundaries around the work because you've got to look after yourself. And also sometimes it's not necessarily helpful to to be to not have those boundaries because if you if you offer somebody things that then leads to expectations that you'll offer more, at what point do you say no? I mean you have to say no at some point. And and that is a really difficult thing to deal with. I think these kind of dilemmas are why we have to be talking to colleagues, because if you're holding that on your own, then it's really painful. And it's that goes back to that moral injury thing. But if you're talking with colleagues, you can work out how to manage this and you can support each other and you can hear colleagues saying things like, you work so hard, you know, you're doing what you can. And actually the people we should be, you know, blaming for this situation is not ourselves, but the state structures, whatever, the legal system, whatever. Leading, leading on from that, you state the importance of speaking to colleagues and having that sort of constant dialogue. What, what would your advice be to the individual who knows that they're suffering as a, as a direct result of the work, but they just find it extremely difficult to be able to articulate that to another person? I mean, it, it's difficult because at the end of the day, we are responsible for ourselves. And, you know, some people find it easier to talk about their well-being than others. And it can be quite gendered. Older men, in my experience, tend to be find it harder to talk than younger women. I mean, obviously not as a generalisation. So I think in a way, people have to to take some responsibility for, for managing themselves and, and allow allow themselves to be vulnerable. But but equally, I think organisations need to be able to create opportunities for people to do that and try and make it as easy as possible. So there's a bit of both, really. 
Just one other thought I had about when you asked the question about um, how managers can support people. Well, I suppose the other thing is, of course, that there needs to be structures to, for managers to get the support. And the problem in organisations is often the people at the top who are doing all the holding everything can themselves get quite burnt out. And then, of course, the problem with that is then lots of pressure is put on people below the organisation. But I read something very interesting recently, which is this idea about a deficit culture. And I think when you're constantly working with limited resources, and I have I have definitely been in this position myself as a manager, you want to absolutely get the most out of the resources you've got. And you want to absolutely do the best job. And the, the risk of that is you end up with what's called this deficit culture, where you think we haven't got enough money for decent tea bags. <laughs> you know, we can't possibly take that time to do that. And and I think it, it can be a problem because then, of course, the people in the organisation feel constantly unnurtured. And so I, I just found that concept really useful. I, thought, I, wish I, I wish somebody had said that to me years ago when I was managing teams myself, because I think when you're working in these sort of very kind of deficit environments, when people don't have nothing and you're so aware of how much you've got, it's, it's sometimes quite hard to, to do the opposite. Well, Gillian, I cannot thank you enough for, for spending time talking us through the, the concepts and how we ought to be dealing with them, not just as individuals working in this sphere, but also managers on a, on a more human level. I'm sure I don't just speak for myself when I say the work that you do is incredible. And having spoken to the individuals who attended your sessions earlier, it's been so, so useful. And I'm sure there'll be follow-up ones. And I'm sure Anna echoes that sentiment. Yeah, definitely. Having attended the training myself, it was it was really great. And even just listening to you speak, I really could listen to you for hours speak about this topic. It really is so fascinating and so relevant to the work we do. So yeah, very grateful for the opportunity to speak to you directly about it. Well, I, I mean, I wanted to say thank you to you guys for inviting me to come and speak. And I have to say, it's a, it's a real privilege to work with you and with your lawyers. You know, we're all in this together. And clearly, you know, you've got a very, you're a very committed bunch of very hardworking people and we've got to keep working on this together. So thank you. And now as our final guest in this episode, we have a very, very good friend of mine, Nicholas Hughes. We came up together at the firm and I know Nick outside of work and inside of work. He's he's incredibly articulate, super insightful. He's currently working on the Brookhouse Inquiry and I don't want to give anything away, but I'm sure that will have a part to play in, in, in what he in what he speaks about today. We used to speak a lot about mental health. We used to, when we did work in the office every day, we used to go for breaks together at 4 p.m. Uh, just to sort of check in on each other and speak about things. So, sadly, post-COVID, we, we haven't been able to do that, but I'm really looking forward to hearing what he has to say and I hope you are too. Over to Nick. Thanks so much for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. I just wanted to start by saying that Nick has always been such a strong advocate for mental health in our team. So just wanted to say thank you for that. But it would be great to start with whether you've actually experienced any vicarious trauma yourself and any particular examples that made it difficult to work in this field. Sure, absolutely. I mean, I think anyone who's worked in this field for any amount of time will have experienced vicarious trauma in one way or another. We are dealing with some of the most vulnerable people in society. And as a result of that, they've all gone through, well, almost or without exception, have gone through absolute hell just even getting to the country. It takes a very stony person to read through an asylum witness statement or take instructions on torture and to not blink and to not feel anything about it. I've had it dozens of times that I've I've read something that's given me pause and I've had to stop and, and step away from it. And I've, I've always found it very important that while you need to be aware of 
the harm that, it, that vicarious trauma can do to yourself, it's important to just recognize it for what it is. The moment that you stop caring, the moment that it doesn't affect you, the moment that you read a, a witness statement and it doesn't move you at all is the moment that you lose the passion you have for this job. We're all here because we want to help someone. We want to make the world a better place or whatever other uh, way you want to describe it. And if it doesn't move you, then you might not be doing the, in the right profession. At the same time, though, because it is going to move you, you need to make sure you're taking care of yourself. I can think of numerous examples that a client has said something to me or done something that has sat with me for a very long time. I, I will touch on this slightly later. I'm currently working on the Brookhouse Inquiry which is an investigation into abuses that were in, in Brookhouse Removal Centre in Gatwick. It was revealed by BBC Panorama back in September of 2017, which the footage that was shown in the documentary was absolutely horrific. So you have examples of G4S officers violently abusing physically and mentally detainees. And it's been a process since the inquiry started of reviewing everything that wasn't broadcast. And as shocking as it was to watch that on TV four years ago, it's even more shocking now to see the raw, uncut footage. And it that does sit with you still. Like I, I remember a, a day recently where I was watching the extended footage from a particularly horrendous assault on a, on a detainee and the detainee being particularly in distress for a very long time afterwards. And I had to stop for a minute and take a pause because I knew that if I carried on watching this as it was, I probably wouldn't be able to concentrate and do my job properly afterwards. I had to step away for a moment, take a break, go make a cup of tea, come back to my desk before I could start over again. I've been doing this job since 2015 now. And while I am less shocked by some of the things that I see or the things that I read, I'm no less moved by them. They still do feel as raw as they did the first time I ever read a Rule 35 report or took instructions from a vulnerable client. They always feel difficult. The only time where I, I, I really particularly struggled with, with, with one thing, despite all the things I've just said, is I had a, a detainee in Brookhouse some four or five years ago now who had a serious heart condition. Doctors were saying that he was unsuitable for detention and shouldn't be near magnets or radio waves, and yet he was at Gatwick underneath a flight path. He was released from detention eventually, and while we were trying to pursue a claim for false imprisonment for him, we were just unable to get instructions from him for a very long time, and I, I couldn't work out why that was until I received an email from a, a friend of his to tell me that he'd passed away, that the heart condition had deteriorated since release, and he spent some time in hospital and then some time out homeless and back in hospital again. And then he passed away. And that's why we hadn't heard from him. That, that hit in a very different way. To lose a client in that kind of way was, was difficult. I did what I, what I normally do when situations like that overwhelming arise. I stepped away for a moment. I, I went for a walk. I, I think I bought a cup of tea from a cafe around the corner and, and stepped back. But that one sticks with me today. It's not, not as horrific, for example, as someone who's experienced torture or sexual abuse or all sorts of things that you read every day but it's for some reason that one resonated more with me than, than the others to, to actually lose someone yeah that was a very difficult experience to have gone through 
think what's very relevant to that as well, and something we spoke about just before we started recording, was the impact of the Home Office's adverse decision making having direct negative impact on our clients and their lives. So not only have they experienced really traumatic events already and ongoingly, but it's actually the Home Office's active decision making which is contributing to that further and preventing them from getting the support they need. And Gillian Hughes speaks about this in an interview that you've just heard, which she talks about it as a moral injury, that something we all suffer as lawyers in this sector, this constant assault on our values where the Home Office's decisions are really impacting our clients in ways that are really painful for us to witness. Is that something that you've experienced when working in this field? And if so, what are the kind of ways you best deal with it and get through it? Absolutely. That's something that you encounter from day one of working in this kind of field is that as big of a hurdle it was for your client to even get to the country in the first place, that's only the beginning. That The next biggest hurdle is the home office and the almost callous nature of the way that they've treated and continue to treat these incredibly vulnerable individuals can be absolutely heartbreaking to read. As I said, I've worked in this field since 2015, and in my experience, it's only gotten worse and more difficult as time's gone on. And it's very, very difficult for that not to grind your own sense of conviction and your own desire to keep working and do the best that you can if you are constantly pushing yourself to do the best for your clients and you are working as hard as you possibly can to achieve anything at the end of the day for them to make their lives better. It's the reason you got into this field in the first place and yet you're working in a system that is completely rigged against you with cuts to legal aid and making it more difficult to just do the most basic thing for your clients to get reports that you might need to get evidence sorted out that you might need to an actual immigration system that's designed around the idea of a hostile environment to make it as difficult and horrible as possible for people to try and engage and get the rights they so desperately deserve is and very much can be soul destroying it it absolutely can be It's, it's knowing that you've put everything into something and you've worked as hard as you can only to be battered back again and again and again and knowing that it's not because of the, the quality of the work that you've done or the merits of your client's case it's just the way things are can be very difficult to come to terms with i had a client who i've represented for for a long time who's been in the uk for years i, I believe 11 years who throughout his entire time in the uk was never granted a right of appeal for 11 years. Fresh claims submitted, judicial reviews, all sorts of attempts to stop their removal, and yet never was given the basic opportunity to have his case heard before a tribunal. And you'd you'd read the same decision over and over again. You'd put in hundreds of hours of work over several months to prepare the perfect case to draft the perfect reps, to get the perfect witness statement, the perfect expert report, and yet at the end of it, you'd read the exact same decision letter that you read a year ago. And motivating yourself to then go, okay, I'll just do another 100 hours again and hope this time it will work. And it can be very, very tough to motivate yourself to keep fighting as hard as you are, keep working for the things that you believe in and keep that sense of injustice and, and, and everything else going so that you can still do the best you possibly can for your clients. One of the things that helped me to a certain extent, whether or not this is the healthiest possible way to, to interpret it, is that I, I got into this field because I was angry about the way things were, that I, I've, I've always felt justice was very important. And I've always felt there's a massive injustice 
in the way that asylum seekers and refugees are treated in this country. To be a part of the team fighting against that injustice is motivation. To see not just the Guardian articles or or anecdotal reports of how difficult things are, but to actually see the reality of how horrible and how difficult it is to just get the most basic rights to survive in this country makes you, and if, if it doesn't, it absolutely should, it makes you mad as hell. Like, I'm mad as hell, I'm not going to take it anymore, that, that whole thing. I, I, it's, it is frustrating, but using that frustration to go, you know what? Screw you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm to get this. It makes those victories even sweeter when they do come. A skill that it took me a long time to develop was being able to recognize those achievements amongst the disappointments. And rather than that being a factor to make you stop doing what you're doing, it should motivate you to do more. Not to overwork yourself and not to take on more than you can handle or anything irresponsible like that, but to believe more or, or motivate yourself more to, to want to continue the fight. When you came back to Duncan Lewis after you, you left and you took some time out from the sector on the whole, what made that more sustainable for you? Why did you feel ready to come back and, and how has that been since returning? So one of the things that was very important for me to, to make sure was in place when I came back was the ability to kind of focus particularly on one specific issue. I had worked on the judicial review that led to the Brookhouse inquiry for, for years beforehand. So the allegations all came up in 2017 when the documentary came out. Myself and, and Lewis, who was my supervisor, were pushed through a judicial review, which led to the, the existing investigation being converted to a public inquiry, which was massive. It's one of the first of its kind uh, into immigration detention in the UK. And I took a break for a while. I, I, I did step away from the industry for for some time after I finished my training contract, to reassess what was important to me, essentially to, to confirm what my values were, essentially. And coming back, it has absolutely reignited that passion and that belief in that those, those feelings of justice and, and, and difference in right and wrong has been restoked by this whole process. And just to wrap this up then, what would be your final top tip for someone who is either working in this field at the moment or looking to go into this field to enable themselves to go through hearing these traumatic stories and come out the other side still able to function well and yeah, their best self at work? I think being able to take time for yourself is, is essential. It can be very, very easy to come into this field motivated and passionate to all of a sudden wanting to say yes to help every single individual you possibly can. And by, by doing so, all of a sudden, you're realizing that you can't, you can't help everyone. And that can be very disappointing. And it can be very traumatic. And it can be very demotivating. And it's about not letting that knock you off course. It's about knowing that you can still make a difference, that the victories come. The wins do come. You do good work. As I said earlier about that motivation from, from seeing injustice, from the, those traumatic things that happen, you see them and you recognize that they're wrong. You recognize that shouldn't happen and you use that as motivation to make sure they don't happen again to protect the most vulnerable people in society. There's an exercise that I've been doing that I've, I learned through, an app, through a meditation app, which is just called Noting. And it's about... No literally just noting when a thought comes up 
positive, negative, doesn't matter what it is, but just noticing that it's happening so that you're not overwhelmed by it. It's very easy to have a thousand and one thoughts in your head at once, hundreds of different emotions, stress, anger, guilt, determination, all sorts of things bouncing around, and you can't keep track of them. It can be quite static, almost, in your, like white noise in your head at once. You don't know where to turn or what to do. But being able to take a moment and note a thought, note that I feel angry, or I feel stressed, or I feel sad, or I feel happy, noting it before you deal with it can really help slow things down for you and make it a lot easier to process what it is that you're you're trying to deal with at the time. Thanks so much, Nick. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back in two weeks' time. 